was fine, but then um, had some. Yeah, yeah if everyone could just mute if you're not talking. Try again. Awesome, great. Okay, perfect. So this is a 48-year-old Caucasian female uh, with a spasmodical history of fibromyalgia. I, she was referred to me for evaluation of uh, left flank pain and intermittent episodes of grass hematuria. Um, she uh, has been having intermittent episodes of grass hematuria at least as of now for the last six months. Uh, she was initially evaluated by urology locally. She got a CT scan. She was found to have like, I believe, eight millimeters of non-obstructive renal calculi. Um, and was told that the hematuria might be because of that. She was not really, um, she continued to have these episodes of left flank pain and she was referred to urology here at the University of Iowa. They did a cystoscopy, a complete workup, and they couldn't find any other abnormality apart from the renal stone, uh, which was non-obstructing, and she didn't have any UTI or anything else going on. When she saw me, she was very frustrated. She had even seen OBGYN to evaluate if there was a gynecological cause of her hematuria, because um, she had a history of a abnormal pap smear at some point of time in the past. Regardless, we had a long discussion, and she um, no family history, though, no, no significant family history of any kidney disease. She did tell me that she has been having some, um, I believe, right-sided hearing deficiency. She, she owns a store, and she herself works as a, uh, like, attends to the phone. And a few months ago, she noticed that she could not hear out of her right ear that well. So she was evaluated even by ENT, and I don't have the I didn't have the, those notes to review. But she was told that her hearing is low in that ear, and uh, there was nothing else that needed to be done. And probably she would not be a candidate for um, like a hearing aid at that point of time. So anyways, we decided to do a kidney biopsy for her. Um, just a second. Sorry. Hello? Um, yeah, so we decided to do a kidney biopsy for her. And she said that she has been having tea-colored urine when she saw me in the clinic two weeks ago. And I actually looked at the urine. It was, it was tea-colored, and it was brownish-colored, and... I can actually uh, pull up her UA. UA was positive for one plus blood, one plus protein, one plus Luke esterase. Microscopy was positive for 19 RBCs, seven WBCs. There were some squamous epithelial cells, um, and uh, that's about it. Any any questions, anyone? Minakshi, did you say she had gross hematuria? Yes, yes. But the urine sample as submitted was not grossly Crossly, pink. Exactly. So there were only like 19 RBCs, but it was like brownish colored. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So at this point, um, obviously you would have your differential diagnosis, right? And um, I assume um, in this case you would consider, besides the urologic causes, but as a to exclude glomerulonephritis in the setting of uh, 
gross and microscopic hematuria, IgA nephropathy. Um, about, I mean, gross hematuria is very rare in IgA nephropathy, but it can happen in up to 5% of cases even. And, um, and of course, due to this hearing um, impairment, we could consider hereditary glomerular basement membrane nephropathy. So um, let's see what the biopsy shows. So we had 41 glomeruli and only one was globally sclerosed. We did perform multiple level sections, um, you know, just to have a whole sample of this uh, kidney. Um, so the, this is an H&E stain. And um, as you can see, you know, all, all glomeruli, you know, um, un unremarkable glomeruli. Um, some had a mild accentuation of the mesangial areas. You can see that some glomeruli have this red here, which is blood. Um, and, you know, they, some of them appear slightly congested. One anecdotal finding that um, Dr. Sui referred to me when she performed the biopsy was that she f the biopsy looked slightly more bloody than, than usual. Um, and uh, I found it interesting that some glomeruli did look congested. I didn't see any evidence of grow, you know, uh, significant hemorrhage in the in the uh, cores. Even you know, and, and she said that it was in both cores, not just the second core, which does tend to be a little bit more bloody. But anyway, the glomeruli, um, even by uh, H&E, they do appear unremarkable, except for this mild congestion. Some renal tubes, although the tubules are back to back, some of them appear slightly dilated and are not atrophic, but her creatinine was normal at 0 0.9 as stated. Um, as, as a larger magni magnification of this, uh, of the glomerular view, uh, <clears throat> this is a silver stain which highlights glomerular basement membrane. So we are basically looking for uh, basement membrane abnormalities. Now, if we're looking for um, basement membrane disease, we're not gonna find it in a light microscopy. GBM abnormalities, what I mean is evidence of on, on JMS, on silver, is basically looking for spikes and holes and or double contours on, <clears throat> on, uh, on uh, uh, JMS uh, stain. And as you can see, the glomerular basement membranes here are very delicate. They're staining with, with JMS just as they should stain. These darker areas, of course, are the mesangial areas. And as you can see, they are normal cellular preserved. You don't have any more than two or three mesangial cells per mesangial areas, which you should see that. Um, a couple glomeruli were slightly large. Is she obese? Just, I forgot to... Yep, she is morbidly obese. Okay, she's morbidly obese. And, um, um, uh, usually the cutoff for glomerular, overt glomerulomegaly, we use um, about 250 uh, micrometers. Um, this is based on a study that showed in um, donor cases that um, uh, show, uh, had this uh, morphometric um, me measurements of the glomeruli and it showed the differences between glomerular um, span and volume. Um, in uh, African-Americans, white, male versus female, and the largest uh, that they referred for the, a normal range that didn't, you know, in, in donors that didn't have any 
pathology um, was about 220. Um, and um, particularly, you know, if the patient is morbidly obese, that's a, an explanation for the glomeruli being somewhat large. Some other some glomeruli also had slight um, scarring around the Bowman's capsule, and she did have, you know, which usually suggests some uh, some ischemia, uh, usually chronic ischemia, and we don't, you know, it's not uncommon to see in patients with arteriosclerosis. Although I don't know if the patient has a history of hypertension, she does have, um, she did have mild to focal moderate. This is the worst ar artery actually in the entire biopsy, which shows um, some evidence of moderate arteriosclerosis. You can see that it's partially sampled here, but you can see that there is um, uh, fibrous intimal thickening um, of the uh, um, likely interlobular in a renal artery. Again, normal cellular glomerulus here with some congestion. Immunofluorescence was basically, and um, I also, in the history, we were kind of reviewing the history. I think, I believe she has a, a history of fibromyalgia and she has a history of um, possible lupus induced, uh, possible drug induced lupus nephritis and um, rheumatoid arthritis. So another thing that we would want to, you know, make sure that this patient doesn't have any, you know, bes you know, the, besides the first hypothesis diagnosis for glomerulonephritis would be IgA, but also if she has some kind of lupus nephritis, even class one. Um, and um, so basically we do, you know, these are the main stains that we use to exclude lupus, which are IgG, C3, and C1Q, and they were all negative. By electron microscopy, uh, we did measurements of the glomerular basement membranes, and um, they were um, actually between, this is one of the sampled areas that were measured, but they were as low as 150 nanometers. The, usually the reference for the uh, average adult female is 200, between 260 and 350. Um, that's on a, I'll give you the reference when we're discussing this case, but that's a, by a study by Mark Haas, who measured over 1,000 um, basement membranes in several patients of several ages and came up with this um, reference table that we use. And um, besides these thin basement membranes, um, uh, we saw, uh, and, and the, the thickest one was actually 250. So the thickest measurement that we, we had was, um, was uh, even below uh, the normal average for the um, average female. Um, here we can see uh, that we have this glomerular basement membrane. And what do we see here besides, you know, these two cuddling <laughs> RBCs here and their toddler RBC uh, asking for water in the bedroom? Um, we have uh, glomerular uh, basement membranes here, and you can see that this is the blood side. We use the we, we can use the RBC as reference for blood side, but um, sometimes if the patient has hematuria, the blood can be on the urinary side. So we have to find um, 
the fenestrations, the endothelial fenestrations here, which look like they, they have the appearance of these caterpillar-like structures. And then on the urinary side, you can see the podocytes food processes, which look like obviously these feet-like um, projections. So you can see that there is patchy. So here they're very, they're preserved, they're fairly preserved, but then you can see that there is some effacement here and then some more preserved ones and then some more effacement. So we have patchy podocyte epithelial food process effacement. Um, I estimated it as about 30%. Um, and no evidence of immune complex deposits. So um, this is how we uh, phrased our report, which was uh, glomerular findings of thin, of thin basement membranes. Um, there was a moderate podocyte food process effacement, global sclerosis in one of 41 glomeruli. We did have some arteriosclerosis. There was minimal negligible interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy and no evidence of immune complex glomerulonephritis. So one thing that we were able to exclude was immune complex glomerulonephritis. Um, as you can see, the glomerular basement membranes, they, are, they don't have any evidence of irregularities. That's when you suspect outport disease such as an outport disease. So you can see that um, we have the lamina rara externa, lamina rara interna, and then the lamina densa. Um, you can also see here that you don't see any evidence of overt basket weaving or glomerular basement membrane irregularities. So from the morphology stand, standpoint, uh, we had a few comments to, to add. Um, you know, the patient had a history of intermittent flank pain with ep episodes of gross hematuria. So uh, we considered, discussed the possibility of doc with Dr. Sambarians, Dr. Sweet, of um, uh, loin pain hematuria syndrome. Uh, so so-called loin pain hematuria syndrome has been associated with abnormally thin glomerular basement membranes, as well as abnormally thick as well. So we are not 100% sure about the specificity of this finding, but it is there, and you know, and I will give some reference about that. Um, but it is important to stress that bef before attributing gross hematuria to thin basement membranes in a 48-year-old female patient, of course, you know, she, and which she has been done already, uh, urologic and gynecologic cause should be carefully excluded as she had this history of renal stone, a cystic renal lesion, um, uh, which was benign, it was like a benign cyst on the side, um, on, also on the um, left kidney, and this report of an abnormal pap smear. Um, in some instances, um, glomerular basement membrane can also be non-specifically thinned uh, when uh, there is uh, obesity-related podocyte injury present. So, um, and potentially this is explained about, you know, the glomerulomegaly and the, like an artifactual stretch of the glomerular basement membrane. But in this case, we can correlate clinically with the presence of hematuria. So it can explain microscopic hematuria. In terms of gross hematuria, again, it's not very common, although patients with thin basement membrane disease um, refer, particularly in the setting of an infection, like an uh, URI, they may see their T 
changing color of urine, but it's not common at all. Um, so the cortical sample was also largely adequate. It had 41 glomeruli for evaluation, um, but you know the possibility of undersample FSGS could not be completely excluded. Um, so in these references here, um, this is the reference that I talked to you about uh, about the, and it, it's you know it's over 10 years old, but it's very nice um, documentation of glomerular basement membrane measurements. And um, also um, some, some considerations about loin pain hematuria syndrome. So uh, according to this reference here, um, LPHS was first described in 1967 by Little et al. Um, the disorder is not very well understood, but it's, um, and, um, it's one in which patients experience severe unexplained chronic unilateral or bilateral flank pain, which is associated with gross or microscopic hematuria. Um, the absence of a primary kidney pathology is an important feature in this LPHS. However, they have been described. Um, you know, and the absence of a consensus of an underlying etiology is reflected by the different therapeutic options available to date for this condition with variable success rates. Um, so few data exist regarding the epidemiology, but we know that it's extremely rare with a prevalence about 0.012%. And it's more common in females with as many as 70% uh, of uh, the patients being women. Um, there are several hypotheses proposed, and, uh, including a vascular constriction disease of the kidney, uh, complement activation in arterioles, coagulopathy, and other have been described, such as a venocalitial fistula, abnormal urethroperistalsis, hypersensitivity, psychopathology, intratubular deposition of calcium, and glomerulonephritis. Of these glomerulonephritis, IgA is usually the is the only one uh, documented. Um, it is also important to um, note that it remains a diagnosis of exclusion, um, and it can be a common presentation of a variety of pathology processes um, as opposed to a single etiology. Um, so many patients with LPHS remain unrecognized for years and often, you know, they shuttle from physician to physician, kind of like we have this with this patient in an effort to determine the cause of the pain and reach a diagnosis. Um, after exclusion of non-glomerular non causes, which this we, we, we have, although documented here, um, the minimal criteria, there is a kind of like a scheme that you go over to reach this, um, include the documentation of hematuria, pain for at least six months, um, and it's proved to not be attributable to nephrolithiasis. Now, this patient, she does have renal stones. Um, so the kidney biopsy is warranted to exclude secondary LPHS, if there were any indications of glomerular disease. Um, so in the biopsies, um, the GPMs, they are generally abnormally thick or, and or thin. Some, some have both thin and thick. Um, when th the, the biopsies were thin, um, in, in, in serial case studies, about 50% to up to even 70% in some smaller um, case um, series samples, uh, cases, uh, descriptions, have been um, 
have been uh, described for uh, thin basement uh, membrane finding. IgA nephropathy has been um, observed as well, and also chronic vascular hypertensive disease. Um, it's not within my scope, but um, since you know, I, I would like to very much hear from what your opinions. Um, treatment are also are usually symptomatic. Capsaicin infusion is described, surgical renal denervation, and um, even uh, auto renal transplantation has been described as a less resource. So um, this is what um, we have for this case, uh, which is very interesting. And if anybody wants to add I, anything. I may have missed, but uh, did you happen to do collagen four staining? A what? Collagen four staining. No, we did not do, uh, we did not perform the panel for, um, for uh, IF. We did discuss, and um, I mean, is actually going to, is referring the patient for, for a molecular, you know, for genetic counseling. If, I mean, uh, Minakshi, if you want to um, say. Well, what I'm saying is we haven't ruled out all ports, right? No, we haven't, but she... Yeah, so I plan to send her for genetic testing for Alport, and that was my next thing to do. Um, so she's seen, coming to see me next week, and then we'll talk about it in person. I think her main issues... Um, I think I'm going to mute myself because I'm I also having problems. Can everyone hear me now? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to have her uh, get a genetic testing for Alport. She's coming to see me next week, but as of now, her main issues are just her left flank pain. I believe that she's been calling multiple providers to get something for pain control, and um, nobody appears to be taking her seriously. So it's quite possible that if she does have loin pain hematuria syndrome, which I'm assuming she does, unless we rule out, like, until we find something and unless we think that she might have Alports, um, then um, pain control might be something which is challenging. And somebody remind me, Moni or uh, Sarat, if you're on. Remember, we brought in that expert in uh, Alp in this loin pain. He was somebody. I think he was from Chicago, and he was telling us about a procedure he does. Um, Auto transplantation, if I'm not yeah. wrong. I but can, but, yeah, I can tell you. So it's um, Hans Solinger, who's a transplant yeah. surgeon from uh, University of Wisconsin. So he's been on his own um, journey uh, with flank pain, hematuria syndrome. I think at his presentation, he told us he had treated 80, 80 patients at UW um, all successfully. He has designed a new test to diagnose this prior to surgery, and the preferred surgery is autotransplantation. The test that he does, they do a yeah, essentially a percutaneous nephrostomy and put 5% um, or so marcaine into the renal pelvis. So the symptoms resolve within five minutes. Yes. You have a diagnosis. Uh, and autotransplantation in his uh, book has worked uh, more than 90% of the time. So he gets patients now from all over the country that are coming to him as a last resort because nobody else believes that, uh, that flank pain is uh, a legitimate um, entity. <clears throat> his, um, his thought was that the reason for the pain is congestion of the ureter from, from at least in some cases, from an entity called the nutcracker syndrome. Um, but 
if if you end up with that as the possible remaining diagnosis after you've satisfied yourself that the kidney stone isn't the cause of the pain, and even if she's got Alport's type nephropathy, I don't think it'll account for pain. Uh, then you could consider talking to Hans in at UW and see what uh, he thinks. Um, it might be worth her making a trip there too um, to get his opinion before making a final decision. Well, what I was saying, if you have Alport's, which I guess you know, with the immunostain, we could have uh, easily said that. Uh, or, or I don't know if we uh, need to do genetic testing yet. Um, if she can be sent to ophthalmology maybe. Uh, but then if you have Alport's, then uh, you ruled out uh, uh, the potential of uh, uh, this syndrome and uh, then you have to give uh, the, uh, the pain another etiology. Yeah, just to complete, sorry, I didn't wanna. Uh... Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So we didn't, so in this case, we, I mean, we can't send it out, um, you know, as, as I, I might or as you might or might not know, the, the company that provided us the antibody discontinued the antibody. And since we, you know, have more like an easier access to, to Christy and um, here at the university, we have more access to um, genetic counseling. We didn't. We are not performing this anymore. You know, unless requested, we can definitely send it out. We usually send it to the University of Chicago. They only do um, three and five um, alpha subunits of collagen type four. So we don't. You know, we're not able to exclude all of all of it. But um, we can that we we can send it. You know, upon request and. Um, our experiences, they usually come back normal, but it's something that we could document. Yeah, I think, I personally think that the immunostaining is of very limited use, except in X-linked males and in autosomal recessives. Um, what she probably has is heterozygous um, um, uh, pathologic variant in either alpha-3 or alpha-4, and that would mean that there would still be staining for those. It's just not a complete loss. To really be useful, you have to have complete loss of either COL4A5 as an um, X-linked male, or complete loss of alpha-3, um, COL4A3 or COL4A4 as in an autosomal recessive of either gender. So I think it will be of limited use, but in any case, there's nothing to suggest that she couldn't have alports plus a genuine cause for, for pain. Um, the one confirmation of one does not help you eliminate another, I don't think. So Christy, I have a question. So, so, so I assume the purpose of oral transplantation is kind of just a denervation, right? That is correct. Yeah, so what is that compared to just to a surgical uh, denervation? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't have any experience, but I was struck by the success of uh, this series from UW. I'll try and find some references and send it to the group. Um, uh, why not do a renal denervation? Perhaps we can't denervate the appropriate portions of the um, kidney or um, uh, collecting duct urinary system, if I, if I were to guess. Uh, 
I don't know. I don't know. Um, I remember somebody I, asked Hans this question, Christy, and he replied that it was because he felt that the uh, ureters were encased completely, and that's what he had to do to remember that. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, all he has is um, is patient um, data, a large enough series. Um, the explanations are hypotheses, but clearly, he's got a lot of grateful patients who've been changed for life. At least that's um, how he tells the story. Um, so, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know what the cause of the pain is. Um, he just found that one procedure seems to work better than everything else, perhaps because it's, it's, a, it's a successful procedure. Hey, Danny, Fadi Yacoub, I got a question for you. There's, a, there's movement to eliminate thin membrane disease as diagnosis altogether, with a belief that all of them really just variant of Alport disease, either very early or simply mild phenotype. How do you feel about that? Danny, you're Daddy. You're muted, Danny. Okay. So um, it is very delicate for us to stop, you know, documented documenting the these. And especially when we have, you know, clinical correlations that um, particularly in overtly thin glomerular basement membranes. Um, it is easy, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, if it was, for example, if you had this, you know, there is this dilemma whether you should send the specimen and add cost to the, uh, to the testing in, in, you know, in these in these cases that uh, we will do a limited immunofluorescence panel to exclude uh, collagen alpha subunits of collagen type four. But um, measuring uh, basement membranes, it's, you know, it's just there. It's, it's not costly at all. It's just, a, you know, a few more minutes that we spend on, uh, on, uh, on uh, when we are scoping. Uh, one thing that I do agree is that sometimes, you know, it's, it's when you see like minimally thin, when they're not overtly thin, um, and when they are um, within, when several measurements fall within the normal range, for example, and then, and in most, in most of our reports, we, we actually, you know, re describe it as a morphologic finding, but in very few of them, we actually say thin basement, thin glomerular basement membrane disease unless they are, the basement membranes are overtly and, and like at least two standard deviation below um, the, we, we use the, the cutoff of 50% or more of the basement membranes are below the average for, um, for the, you know, for, of normal measurements. Um, I, I would not disagree completely with, um, the movement that um, is calling upon questioning the specificity of this, but I think it's a, you know, it's a feasible exam that we can do. So I don't also, I also don't agree with like eliminating this diagnosis. Uh, I don't know if I <laughs> answered the question, but, uh, or if you wanted to something more targeted. 
the only way to prove this, you would have to do repeated biopsies in patients that you initially found the thin membranes and then years later to re-biopsy and see how many of those actually uh, on a new biopsy have uh, alports. Or simply do genetic testing, as we mentioned yeah. before, and, and get the answer. Yeah, I think I think the point that Fadi is trying to make is that if you have thin basement membranes from Alport gene variants, don't call it thin basement membrane disease. They actually right. have Alport's nephropathy. Right. Some of them remain with just hematuria. Some of them go on to get end-stage renal disease and everything else in between. Yeah, I would though, say it's a triage. You know, it's a it's a yeah. valuable triage method. I would say that. Yeah. And so shall we send those patients to you then, Christy, patients that we have, uh, in the, again, an initial pathology report of thin basal membranes? I would suggest to you that if you have uh, just um, persistent microscopic hematuria that you start with genetic testing and, and avoid the biopsy. Um, it's a much simpler, safer, uh, and less expensive test. Okay. So I think the, the, there are a lot of interesting discussion, but I go back to the the true etiology. So, so let's say if you say uh, Danny, you say normal uh, GBM is 260 to 360, but based on the normal distribution, 95%, right? So, so for all the, uh, you know, everything there is distribution. So it's a very rare disease. So could this the the population of people who are within normal outside the normal distribution, but you know, it's a disease because it has a symptom, but does not necessarily has to have a genetic mutation. So someone has a genetic mutation, you call alport, but uh, just somehow just within this uh, distribution, someone outside very extreme, does not necessarily have a genetic mutation. And because the membrane is so thin, they do have a hematuria causing a symptom. So, so I, I guess, you know, uh, unless we know more about the ease, uh, 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 genetics, uh, uh, basis for so-called thin membrane disease, you know, so it could be just outside, you know, the normal distribution, you know, and just not necessary, uh, in, a, uh, have a genetic pathogenesis, you know, but it's either disease because they have a symptom. So, so to say just get rid of thin memory diseases, I think is uh, maybe a little bit to one extreme. I think we need to know more about uh, the underlying etiology. Yeah, it's also fair to say that in a series of patients with microscopic hematuria who don't have IgA nephropathy, only about a third of the time are there ALPO gene variants identified. So we don't know all of the bases for thin basement membrane disease. Um, we only know that some fraction of them have Alport gene variants that correlate. So there may be other genetic variants, other genes that cause it. We just haven't identified it yet. Or as, uh, as uh, Chao Long says, there are other reasons for thin basement membrane. It's only when you have thin basement membranes plus Alport gene variants that you can say that that is Alport's nephropathy. Yeah. And frankly, uh, if you, you know, if, if I take a review of, of all our reports, it's very, I, it's very rarely when we say disease, you know, thin basement membrane disease, we refer the morphology finding. But um, I'm very cautious because on, on, you know, calling this because, you know, one time, once you like stamp that and then you 
imply that there are, you know, this is the cause, you know, that's, that's when we do this, those comments, you know, rule out other, other causes and investigate farther. So, okay. Very interesting. Um, I have a second case, which is a patient with a COVID infection. Um, 30 year old, this is from an outside uh, institution. Um, we are still, we'll, I will probably give you follow up on this case with the clinician. Um, so um, this is a uh, 30 year old African American male with no significant past medical history. Um, has, uh, was tested positive for uh, COVID-19, reporting diffuse swelling and foamy urine, um, found to have hypertension, like a, a increased blood pressures. He, he, does, he didn't have any previous history, but we don't know. Um, and also has a AKI and nephrotic syndrome. His serocreatinine was found to be three and BUN70. And the urine protein was 3.3 grams in 24 hours. Urinalysis did not show any hematuria or casts. So the biopsy showed 50 glomeruli, also did multiple levels on this, on this case, um, and one was globally sclerosed. So before showing you the glomeruli, I just wanted to show the renal tubules, which uh, do show evidence of acute injury with attenuation of the epithelium. You can see that they are dilated. Um, some of them look appear normal, but some of them are dilated. Some of them have show blabbing. So there is some evidence of um, in the uh, mitotic figure here. So there is some evidence of acute uh, injury. Um, and uh, some very occasional calcium oxalate and phosphate microcalcifications. Um, and this is, I just wanted to just open a parenthesis here for uh, when the, for the fellows and, and possible residents that might be here. Um, so what, how do I differentiate a calcium oxalate from a calcium phosphate micro, microcrystal on biopsy? So um, calcium phosphate, they're basophilic and they're not polarizable uh, on, um, when you polarize uh, the, you know, the, the, the slide. Um, calcium oxalate, they are usually more transparent, but they polarize when you, uh, they, they show, uh, they, they are polarizable. Um, so the glomeruli, um, this Siamese twin glomeruli here, uh, most of them were slightly large. They were normal cellular, and they have this very subtle finding here. I don't know if you can appreciate, uh, but there, you know, if you go, uh, in the glomerular capillary tufts throughout the morphology of this glomerulus on JMS, the glomerular capillary loops appear normal. There is no double contouring or anything, but you have this finding which has the predilection for the, you have the vascular pole here with the, you know, this is the extra glomerular mesangium here with, um, I don't have a sample, uh, afferent afferent arteriole, but you can see them here as they enter or leave the glomerular capillary tuft. But you see this very subtle change um, at the opposite pole, meaning the urinary pole of the glomeruli. Anybody want to suggest anything about this change here? 
Could it be an early crescent. Or FSGS like tip lesion, very early tip lesion. Right, uh, tip lesion. Um, early crescent would be an idea. Given the patient's history of no hematuria and more like nephrotic range proteinuria, um, you know, we would favor a podocyte injury, but it's good that you have this in your differential. Just looking at the morphology and not looking at the, if you, in case you didn't have the history. Um, so I found these, um, these changes and, and here I will describe it for you. So I'll have, we have, so we have the vascular pole here and we have the urinary pole and you have foamy, uh, foamy uh, intracapillary cells and possible herniation of the uh, urinary tuft into the, proximal renal tubule. Um, upon multiple level sections, so at this point, you know, I favored the, the, the possibility of tip lesion, but seeing the patient with COVID-19, significant, uh, significant proteinuria and AKI, I want to definitely exclude COVEN, right? The collapsing variant of uh, glomerulonephritis. So again, but then, you know, I kept, we kept doing sections and we found out of these glomeruli, we found five glomeruli that had this change that was confined to the urinary pole of the, of the glomerulus. Again, foamy uh, intracapillary cells, podocyte hyperplasia and hypertrophy, and uh, here trying to herniate, herniate into the uh, proximal renal tubule. And the rest of the glomerular capillary tuft was basically normal. Again, another one, and uh, this is actually the same glomerulus that you see here on JMS, you see it on PAS here. And you can see some um, cells that are um, that in variable states of um, degeneration. You can see um, apoptosis here. And um, these, uh, this podocyte, kind of like a crown around this uh, urinary pole of the glomerulus. Possible early adhesions here. So you can see possible link, linking of the glomerular tuft to the Bauman's capsule here. Immunofluorescence was uh, negative. I'm um, showing you an example of the IgG, but um, all other immunoreactants were basically negative. Um, the albumin stain did show uh, staining of the protein droplets, reabsorption droplets in renal tubules, which um, is one more uh, factor to confirm significant proteinuria. Um, by electron microscopy, we have diffuse <clears throat> severe food process effacement. So if all my glomeruli looked normal and I had this diffuse food process effacement, this, I would call this consistent with minimal change disease, right? But we have this, these tip uh, FSGS type lesions. In addition to that, we saw um, tubular reticular inclusions. There were so many. There were very many um, tubular reticular inclusions, which are, we discussed this in the previous, and we keep discussing this, which are a significant but a relatively non-specific finding that you normally have um, these inclusion type um, 
structures um, here that um, we call tubular because you know if they're cut, cut uh, parallel they look like little um, rods and if in reticular because they're if they're cut cross-section they look like fishnets so that's why we call them tubular reticular and they are inclusions we call them inclusions because they are inside the endothelial cells usually but um, but they're not true viral inclusions they are um, seen as a, a reactive change um, and we call them interferon footprints. So they can be found in viral infections. Lupus, uh, lupus is another very common one, interferon treatment, etc. So we, um, there was no significant, like just minimal interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy as well. So we call this glomerular findings of um, tip lesion, uh, glomerular tip lesion, um, minimal global glomerulosclerosis. We refer the numerous endothelial tubular reticular inclusions by EM acute tubular injury and no significant tubular interstitial scarring. So in the comment, we also made reference for what we have learned so far by COVID um, and what we have uh, documented about tip lesion that might be helpful for guiding the treatment and follow-up for this patient. Um, Glomerular tip lesion is generally described as a variant of focal segmental glomerulosclerosis. Um, so GTL, they are rare and they are characterized by this podocyte segmental hypercellularity or sclerosis um, involving um, the outer 25% or less of the glomerular tuft with or without adhesions that is adjacent to the tubular or urinary pole. It is usually described as a primary podocyte disease. Some describe it as being within the spectrum of minimal change disease because, you know, they're usually steroid responsive, but some others um, describe it within the FSGS, as an FSGS uh, best prognosis variant. Um, but GTL has also been described in some cases. Um, a few cases have been described in patients with APOL1 gene mutation, HIV, hepatitis D. In HIV, um, there was a series of um, about um, 20 cases and one had um, from um, University of Chicago, Anthony Chang. Um, there was one patient with HIV and tip lesion. Um, and, you know, other like lupus, um, systemic autoimmune disease, uh, thalassemia trait, among other causes. Um, some studies suggest that GTL lesions are observed in biopsies obtained earlier during the FSGS. Um, then, for example, collapsing in non-FSGS lesions. So the possibility of this being a very early biopsy that could progress to a collapsing is there. Um, although GTL, at least at, when I saw the biopsy, I didn't see anything described as SARS-CoV-1, uh, CoV-2 infection. Um, other variants of FSGS, as we know, are, have been documented, like the collapsing uh, um, FSGS have been documented throughout last year. And um, then I made the, our, you know, our discussion about tubular reticular inclusions, which you already talked about. So. Um, I'll make this uh, lecture available and I have these uh, references here. So um, any, so basically on this one, you know, we, we uh, I suggested that, you know, given the patient being African-American, 
maybe the possibility of molecular genetic testing and um, but the clinician is doing you know the follow-up and work up and hopefully I'll have some follow-up for you on this I have two quick follow-ups for less case dr. Um, Jakub's case for last conference he um, updated me that this that his patient from the last conference that that the patient had COVID and collapsing GN did have and uh, ended up having two copies of G1 risk alleles. Um, do you want Dr. Yacoub, please feel free to say, you know, uh, add anything. And I also wanted to uh, follow up on an autopsy case that we presented in March. We, we actually obtained a mini grant for performing EM in a series of um, COVID autopsies. Uh, we are still, you know, collecting cases, but um, we, we found this interesting finding on this particular autopsy um, that um, I'll just update you real quick with the history because this was earlier in the year. So this was a 73-year-old male with no significant past medical history except for mild obesity and um, history of cholecystitis and hypertension that came in uh, that did have a COVID infection, had pneumonia, um, and had received hydroxychloroquine treatment in back when, you know, um, uh, and then he was found to have acute uh, cardiac and uh, cardiac arrhythmias and acute kidney failure. And then he, um, the hydroxychloroquine was stopped after five days of, of treatment. Um, he was transferred to here. This was in an outside community. Um, and then he was uh, transferred here after he had this cardiac arrhythmia. And then he, you know, he deteriorated and was pronounced dead in early April. Um, the lungs should, showed diffuse alveolar damage and multiple thromboemboli. And I, I did, I don't remember, I, do, I don't think you remember this because it's a long time ago, but I showed this. Um, kidneys showed this, what called the, our surgical pathologist attention was the pattern of kidney injury on this patient, which she showed me and you know we we recognized this as isometric vacuolization which was diffuse in all tubules there was an incidental thrombus but in the setting of multiple thrombi of the lung we best classified the glomerular thrombus as incidental um, but here you can see even in the um, trichrome stain this very pronounced uh, isometric vacuolization of the renal tubules then, you know, after obtaining the mini grant, we performed this EM in uh, around August. Um, we found this, which um, was focal. It was in, not in the glomeruli and it was in the tubules, but it was very interesting because it uh, appeared to mimic zebra bodies. And um, as we know, this, uh, which we call emulation in uh, organella. Um, so we, um, we, we know that zebra bodies are, are documented with chronic hydroxychloroquine um, treatment, as well as in, uh, these, are very, these are common in patients with Fabriz disease, and they are products of um, misdigestion of um, lipid. But um, we found this was worth of reporting, and actually we were able to report it in the American Journal of Ultrastructural Pathology. Um, so that I just wanted to update you on that, but I'll leave 
these last six minutes open for any discussion for the other the other COVID cases or if anybody has any questions. So um, do you think that the tubular injury was from hydroxychloroquine or that hydroxychloroquine may have caused proteinuria like in Fabrice? Since we since this we can't exclude, right? We cannot exclude. But because uh, we did not see this in the glomeruli, um, we know that you know we can have tubular proteinuria. Um, we could not we could not rule out um, that um, the hydroxychloroquine could be at least contributing to the kidney injury and even morphologic changes that have been described in hydroxychloroquine in chronic hydroxychloroquine, we can see here in the tubules as a, ver a possible early finding that it's not in the glomeruli yet, but you know, could be. Um, but this is one case, right? So, um, Christy, it's interesting that you're asking that because uh, there is a study from two years ago uh, that showed that uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, actually reduces proteinuria in uh, IgA patients, and I've been using it in IgA patients for, for, for that purpose. Could the patient have AKI due to his clinical picture and then a drug contribute, we well know that it, it can contribute to the worsening of the kidney injury. But what was interesting in this case is the also the timely correlation between the initiation of the hydroxychloroquine treatment and uh, heart uh, cardiac, uh, acute cardiac um, findings and acute kidney injury. Uh, the, the doses that you use probably are much lower than what's given for COVID, right? That's probably why. Hi, Danny. Mm -hmm. So, so the zebra body is mostly due to hydroxychloroquine. Is that right? Right. Oh, like when we, you know, reported our reported our this finding of zebra bodies in the setting of chronic treatment of with hydroxychloroquine um, in the setting of uh, autoimmune disease for example um, and, and it, yeah it is the, the description is that it is um, because so, of so this um, patient received hydroxychloroquine for how long just five days okay Huh. Yeah. Okay. So that's the question. Is this, um, you know, an incidental finding, you know, that um, could be just, you know, we, we had a lot of uh, in injury in the form of other um, changes like vacuolization, cell detachment, as you can see here. So here is the tubular basement membrane. Um, and then you have the cell cytoplasms here, and uh, you can see that all the organella have um, different degrees of edema, and just a few, you know, some of them have this striped pattern or lamellation pattern. Uh, I assume, you know, we cannot prove 100%, but because of the elongated morphology of this organella, we, um, it could be that they are mitochondria. So um, 
zebra bodies are usually found in lysosomes, so we we are also questioning this finding, um, how specific this would be. But you know, well, it, to some extent, it's not surprising to see this with chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. They're used in in a in the lab setting as a deliberate lysosomal blocker. And so Fabry is also a lysosomal disease. So presumably when you block lysosomal function in some ways, you mm -hmm. get these uh, accumulations that have this um, electron microscopic appearance. So if that's the case, then that structure you're looking at may not be the mitochondria, but a lysozyme. Lysosome, sure. sorry. Yeah. You know the doses of the hydroxychloroquine? That was yes, we, uh, it was 500, uh, can I go, um, let's see, uh, so, um, Beautiful text. Yeah. So, so before Danny found it, uh, so like mm -hmm. Christy say, hydroxychloroquine is blocked in the acidification of lysosome, so impair the function of lysosome, and so the whenever you have a lysosome uh, disorder, that's what it looks like. The reason it's been tried to use uh, to treat COVID is the. Uh, COVID bind to ACE2 and then internalize, they need to be processed within lysosome so it can be released and then uh, uh, amplified in, inside a cell. And so blocking that uh, is supposedly, but, but again, you block in lysosome, you know, could be you know, a lot of a uh, problem, you know, uh, just a comment, any? Yeah, so 200 milligrams twice a day for five days. That's not a lot. It's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, I took care of that patient at Mercy and uh, the cardiomyopathy clearly appeared uh, uh, after starting uh, the hydroxychloroquine. You, you, you saw this patient? Yes. Okay. And, um, and it, it, was, it was kind of the same time as the acute kidney injury? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, I was called uh, when he when he was at Mercy, and uh, that's the reason I was called, obviously, for the acute kidney injury. And uh, he was uh, quite sick at that point. And uh, yes, uh, the, he received uh, four or five days of uh, hydroxychloroquine. Next day, he was actually already being transferred. Uh, he probably uh, needed the CRT at that point. Um, let's see. I was going to ask you about the tip uh, lesion case. Uh, it seemed that the pathology uh, maybe didn't match the uh, severity of the clinical picture, or the severity of the pathology findings didn't match the, the clinical picture. Yes, but at the same time, you know, considering I agree with the acute kidney injury. Um, that but at the same time you know when you have minimal change disease you can have right like you can have acute, yeah second like glomeruli may look normal right at um on light microscopy so 
I don't know. I, you know, in my, I, I strongly, I strongly recommended, you know, verification of if there is a po one mutation on this patient because maybe this could be an early, you know, early collapsing. So. Well, thank you, Danny. Thank you, thank you very much, and um, and I'll try. You know, I'll see if I can keep you updated on this case for our next conference. Thank you. Thank you.